I was just telling you about this conversation that we're about to have right now, that it seems we are so much more aware of mental illness. May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month, so this is really timely right now to be talking about this. I think the stigma around mental illness and mental health has really largely been lifted in the last few years, but in terms of what we can actually do about it and accessing counseling or treatment or medication still looks pretty limited here in Canada. So we're going to get into it right now with our guest, who's Assistant Professor of Psychology at York University. Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick is joining the show. Dr. Fitzpatrick, thanks so much for making the time. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to talk a little bit about how prevalent mental illness in some form is here in Canada because the numbers are actually very high. How many Canadians are dealing with some sort of mental health concern or mental illness? So the statistics suggest that about one in five Canadians had a mental illness prior to COVID. And then during COVID, I'm sure it's not a surprise that the rates of mental illness rose pretty sharply. So I don't know that we have kind of like fully comprehensive um, sense of the rates post COVID per se, but, but it's high, right? We also know that, and again, this statistic is before COVID, by the time people are 40, by age 40, half of the Canadian population will have had a diagnosable mental illness at some point. Wow. So I mean, kind of everywhere. Even without a, a concrete number, I think knowing that one in five Canadians are dealing with this or have dealt with it in some way really speaks yeah. to just how prevalent it is. And that, that can be wide ranging, right? That can be from, you know, maybe a, a smaller issue to a really life limiting issue issue, right? Yep. Correct. Yeah. So that could be something as simple as like, you know, I have a phobia of dogs that gets in the way of my life and causes me to stress, but you know, I can kind of mostly set up my life so that I don't I see dogs very much to really debilitating depression or schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that we're more aware now of mental illness than we were previously? I think a, you know, generally a really good thing. I think that there's been a lot, uh, I, generationally, I think that increasingly generations seem to be more in touch with how they're feeling, more aware of their own mental health needs, and also aware that uh, they maybe don't need to live with mental illness throughout their entire life, and that the solution might not be just to suppress and ignore and push it away. I, I think that that's something that uh, is become increasingly Uh, apparent to people over the last several decades and that's probably a result of many things but one of those things is probably a lot of the advocacy efforts that have happened to try and destigmatize mental illness to make people more aware of it and there's been so many public campaigns about that and they probably have worked you know to increase people's awareness of it. Yeah I think that there has been a huge effort made in in many different areas to really lift that stigma and you're you're always going to have some people in certain generations and mm-hmm. across the board that are going to say, well, if you're if you're mentally ill or if you've got a mental health concern, it's because you're weak. And I, I think mm-hmm. that that's become more and more um, of a minority type thought. And that I think really sets us up really nicely for a situation where people do feel that they can be open about their stories and open to talk about what's really going on. But in terms mm-hmm. of the help available, we're still really lacking here in Canada. You share yeah. in your in your article that you wrote for the Globe and Mail, a really personal story about your own journey with mental illness. And I don't think that I can properly do it justice. Are you comfortable sharing sort of what led you into talking about why treatment and accessibility to medication is limited here in Canada? 
Absolutely. And I mean, um, it's not even really my own personal story of my own mental illness so much as, as the story of work, being a psychologist, working with people with serious mental sure. illness and seeing the difficulties they have in accessing care. So I specialize and I treat all kinds of problems, but I specialize in a, in a problem called borderline personality disorder, which is a really serious problem that unfortunately can be quite lethal. So uh, about 84% of people with this disorder harm themselves at some point in their life and 10% of Canadians with BPD uh, die by suicide. So it's a really serious condition that requires a lot of care and yet um, at least where I live in Toronto to get publicly funded treatment for borderline personality disorder which does exist requires waiting for months to even years. I've been involved in publicly funded clinics that provide this treatment that have multi-year wait lists and those wait lists aren't even open most of the time. Most of the time they don't even, they're so full they can't even put new names on the wait list and for those who are on the wait list those people are waiting months to years you know, that's a life-threatening amount of time Mm -hmm. for somebody who is suicidal and so and I've worked with many people where you know they, they, I get emails, many emails, you know, every week from parents, from people with this disorder, from family members who are concerned saying like, where can I go? Where can I send my loved one to get treatment? I've developed as many comprehensive resource lists as I can, but the reality is like, there's not enough places for them to go. So I completely understand their despair. Is this just simply a supply and demand issue? It is a supply and demand issue. I mean, there's, there's, it's probably a multi-pronged issue. I mean, I'm, you know, we need more funding for mental health care. We need to be able to expand it. We need to be able to offer it for free to people. Um, we also need to train more people to be able to offer it. But then there's also the supply and demand issue of, if you think about how many people have mental illness, like that statistic I said around by 40. of the people in the population are going to have had a mental illness, it feels kind of like, well, basically everyone needs to be a mental health provider in order to do um, the therapy that everyone else is going to need. And so it kind of gets to a point of, yes, we need to expand access to psychotherapy, to psychiatric medications. We need to do all those kinds of things. But I think we also really need to realize that that's not going to cut it either. We also need to reimagine mental health care in a way that doesn't rely on those two things as the primary and only way of getting help because um, there's not enough providers. And I, I don't know that there really will be. So how do we navigate an issue that most Canadians are going to need help to deal with in such a big way? I want to get into that with you, uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick, but we do have to take a very short break. We're going to be right back. We're going to keep talking about this. We're more aware of mental illness, but what do we really do about it here in Canada? Uh, That's next in three minutes. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we're talking about the fact that we are much more aware of mental illness. Certainly, I think the stigma has lifted largely around it, but what do we do about it? Access to treatment still remains really limited for a lot of people in Canada. That's what we're getting into right now with our guest, Assistant Professor of Psychology at York University, Dr. Skye Fitzpatrick. Is there is there a way to sort of fill this gap that is that is reasonable to try to get Canadians more access to treatment that is desperately needed in some in some cases, like you've described with with people living with a, a borderline personality disorder, something that could really be life threatening for people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really do believe that there is. You know, it's obviously highly concerning. I, I'm obsessed with this problem. I think about it every single day, and I have a lot of hope. Um, and I think it's kind of a multi-pronged thing. Yeah, no, we have treatments that work. We know that we have treatments that work. Sometimes we have a hard time getting them to people because we have these access problems. We don't have enough providers. As I said, there's a supply and demand issue. So we can do what we can to train people, train more people to be able to deliver the interventions. But as I said, that's not that's not going to cut it. That's not enough. Mm. It's good. It's not enough. So we have to get more creative. And, you know, it, we kind of have to question this history of, like, what we think about mental health care is. You know, it started kind of with, with people like Freud in the late 1800s. We, we thought, you know, oh, therapy, talk therapy and, and medications. You know, these are the paths forward in mental illness and mental health treatment. Um, and those are great. And there's all other kinds of things that are way more scalable, can be delivered more broadly, that could be treatments or thought of as interventions for mental health. So I'll just give like a couple examples. Yeah. Um, some examples like on a societal level are, you know, we know that things like not having a home, you know, being unhoused, experiencing discrimination, having people not use the pronouns that align with your gender identity. Those things have mental health implications. So as a society, if we can push for changes in those domains, that's a mental health intervention as much as it's an intervention for, you know, policy or a political intervention like these kinds of things have real world impacts on people's lives that's one thing we also know that there's lots of small things that we can do that might have a small impact but be so scalable as in available to so many people that while their individual impact might be smaller than say a year of psychotherapy their population level impact is huge like a kind of famous example of this is um, doctors saying to people who come to the doctor's office like I recommend you quit smoking that's not like a psychotherapy for smoking. That's not like a 12 session or, you know, 30 session treatment. That's a 10 second interaction. Um, and it's been studied and it has a very small effect, but it's, it's, it's able to be delivered to so many people that on a population level, its effect is really significant. Like it can have a big effect on reducing smoking rates because so many people can get it. Um, and we've also seen things like when doctors, send a text message or a letter to people who have been discharged from a hospital for like a psychiatric reason, just sending a text message or a letter expressing concern, saying, I hope you're well, um, thinking about you, that reduces suicide rates. Is that as good as a year of intensive psychotherapy? I doubt it, but it's something that we could do on such a massive scale that that kind of light touch on such a big scale really, really matters. Hmm. So I think we need to think creatively like that too. On the heels of thinking creatively, and we've been talking a lot about this on the show, I want to know if there could be a place for for AI when it comes to trying to fill the gap. We've talked about maybe implementing some part of AI into, you know, trying to trying to provide care in terms of what family physicians do and maybe that's sort of the way of the future. You know, even just in a very simple sense of helping to diagnose somebody or provide really light counseling, could that be a road that you think we could go down? I do, yeah. I mean, I think that 
that is, I predict that that will happen in some form or another. Is it the full solution? Probably not. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of people who are not going to want that. And then there's lots of people who will want that and can benefit from it. I think that there is a tension with AI where it's like it has an incredible potential. And then our job as people and how we allow it to be used and encourage it to be used is really around making sure that it is like safe and ethical. It respects people's yeah. privacy, that it, it, you know, it's thoughtful about when it's kind of gone beyond the range of a decision that an AI algorithm can make. And, you know, it's funny, I feel like a lot of people in many different fields, and I can't speak to the other fields, so I'll speak to my own. I think people sometimes worry like, oh, AI is going to work me out of a job <laughs> uh, in mental health care. First of all, I would love to be worked out of a job. Uh, let me say, <laughs> I would love something that is so effective that, you know, my job is not necessary. That's the dream. But I don't think that's actually true. I think that we're always going to have a role in in providing treatment to people, but also in guiding things like AI to make sure that they are as helpful and effective as they can be. So probably AI could be good partners to mental health care providers. Yeah, I think uh, it's about them, like take it over. For sure. It's about bolstering the support that's available. I mean, there is a huge gap. I don't think that um, as a professor of psychology, your job is at risk. You know, I, remember, <laughs> yeah. I remember after having my daughter, my my general anxiety sort of like went into overdrive and I called 811 yeah. here in Alberta and was like, I think I might need to talk to somebody about this. And and they said, and this is to no fault of the operator, they said, you know, what it sounds like you're going through is pretty normal for a new mom. If you want to talk to somebody, it's going to be an eight-month wait. So, I mean, we have mm -hmm. a huge gap here. And if you're not mm -hmm. going to take ownership of your health or you don't have the time to wait, how many times are you going to make that phone call and wait around those eight months? Many people won't. And it will just sort of mm -hmm. continue to perpetuate and, and get worse for so many people. So there is profound need. I want you to remind us before before I let you go, Dr. Fitzpatrick, what do you think those numbers are going to look like in terms of Canadians dealing with a mental health illness in the next few years? Because you said it's going to it's going to significant, significantly jump. I think it has it has risen due to the pandemic. I don't know. Is it going to go down because, you know, a lot of the social distancing is kind of coming to a close and so people are socializing more. Isolation is terrible when it comes to mental illness. So I think that more connection is better for people. Um, and we live in a stressful time. Honestly, I think what's going to happen to our mental illness as like a society, it kind of comes down to like, well, what is, what are we going to do as a society? What is our government going to do to protect us mm -hmm. and to make sure that our mental illness is taken care of? Um, or are they going to put policies in place that make mental illness worse or strip healthcare away from people, you know, like, and then the rates are going to rise. So I think that that's something that we all need to be pushing for as a society. I think this is going to take all of us to tackle. Well, Dr. Fitzpatrick, this conversation goes a long way to do that. Thank you so much for highlighting such an important issue and for your work on this. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Take care. That's Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick, Assistant Professor of Psychology at York University. More aware of mental illness here in Canada, but what are we doing about it to get people care?